I'd love to know your definition of the word intentional and then where people can find you. You know, the development of a business should be intentional. Intentional should mean it's deliberate, it's measured, it's carefully considered. Uh, you're thinking through the lens of employees, through customers, through shareholders. Uh, for me, intentional just means there's a real mindfulness that's coming from the C-suite. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Hey, everybody, and welcome back. This is Ryan Tansom, your host of the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is episode 275, and today my guest's name is Peter Learman. He is the founder and CEO of Axial, and this is the second time on the show. It's been a couple years, and we're going to be diving into the topic of the overall marketplace of mergers and acquisitions and buying and selling privately held companies and just the overall inefficiencies of the marketplace and the progress that's been happening since Peter got uh, into the game with Axial in 2010. And a little bit of background on Axial, it's one of the largest or is the largest platform on the internet for buying, selling, advising, and financing private companies. Over the last 10 years, Axial has established a single well-known platform business owners and deal professionals trust to discover and connect with other players in the world of M&A who are looking to do deals, whether that's finding an acquisition target, finding potential buyers, raising funds, or finding advisors. And in 2010, when Peter started Axial, uh, or since 2010, Axial has facilitated over 2,000 transactions, built a network with over 10,000 financial investors, M&A advisory firms, and company executives active in the lower middle market. Axial members focus on changing of control, minority equity, debt, and co-investment transactions involving U.S. and Canadian businesses doing anywhere between five and $250 million in revenue. Prior to Axial, Peter worked in private equity at SSW Capital Partners and was part of the founding team at Gerson Learman Group, and where he helped build the company's global technology platform for on-demand business expertise. And one thing we're going to be talking about today in the main topic is that the middle market is the backbone of the American economy, but it's still hamstrung by a ton of inefficiencies in the process of buying and selling companies and just capital in general. And Peter and I dive into what these inefficiencies are which is just another polite way of saying all the things that are broken in the process of buying and selling privately held companies and how the marketplace can get better through more transparency, education, and platforms like Axial. I'm super excited about this episode because the market and process of buying and selling privately held companies has been too mysterious for too long. That's you know the entire origination behind this podcast and my journey. And there needs to be a way for great companies and great buyers and investors to discover each other and be and making sure that we're all making progress for the right reasons and with the right people. I'm very looking forward to this episode. I hope you do too. So without further ado, here is my episode with Peter. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. 
Peter, how are you, man? Good, Ryan. How are you? Doing good. Uh, I we just laughing because we just got done having a couple of fun conversations about. Uh, it's been two and a half years, man, since you were on the show, and uh, there's been some. You bought a couple domains that helped clean up your brand, and we won't get into that. But it was a uh, maybe a smile, and um, yeah, lots gone on in the world, in the world of M and A, and buyers, and the money that's out there. And so I saw you post uh, something about. You had gone to a conference something like that with Brent Bishar, and I just love everything that he's doing. So I saw that, had to reach back out, and here we are, man. Super excited to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. And for those of you uh, curious about Ryan's comment, uh, <laughs> I'm happy to share the story. But uh, Yeah, I do I, it, man. I got I to I hear it. I think our brand has been clean as a whistle since day one, unfortunately. <laughs> There was a sex toy business that had a very similar uh, uh, overall uh, website. We owned .co and .net, and they owned .com. And um, I finally was able to wear him down and uh, and buy Axial.com. So um, what we really did, I think, was clean up his brand, uh, not clean yeah. up our own. There <laughs> you go. <laughs> Good thing. Thanks for the clarification. <laughs> uh, so... Immediate digression. This is going to be a fun hour. Um, all right. So for the people that have not caught your previous episode or are not familiar with Axial, why don't you just give us a little bit of your background and then what Axial does and what, where you spend most of your time these days? Sure. Uh, so my personal background, professionally, I started my career working for an information services business that got started in New York uh, in 2000. Uh, actually, late 90s. I joined in 2001. The business is uh, called GLG. Um, the original name was Gerson Lehrman Group, but they shortened it to GLG. It was co-founded by my brother, Thomas and Mark Gerson. And uh, the business uh, made expertise and insight available uh, on a near on-demand sort of real-time basis to professional investors. So we built a marketplace of experts all around the world, and we connected those experts for live private calls and conversations with professional investors. And it was a way for investors in all types of companies of all shapes and sizes to speak with experts very quickly and understand businesses and important topics uh, very, very quickly. I spent six great years there. Business grew really well. We served a lot of different customers in America and then around the world. I got to live in London and set up an office for us in Shanghai and then went to graduate school in 2006, uh, spent two years in graduate school uh, out in California at Stanford, which was two great years. Um, and I interned for an investment firm that was a private equity investment firm that was investing in small, very small, mostly family-owned um, and, and founder-owned businesses uh, in America, overwhelmingly businesses in the testing, measurement, and instrumentation category, which is a pretty <laughs> arcane category of really interesting, really highly valuable businesses um, that have really, really strong competitive positions. And the challenge of finding these businesses, identifying them, knowing which businesses they were, knowing how big the businesses were, uh, just size-wise, just general size, approximate size, mm -hmm. as well as trying to know whether or not the business owner was thinking about a transaction and was open to a transaction, either a recapitalization that kept them involved or a full cash out, all of that information, you know, this is in the mid to late 2010s, uh, was just nowhere to be found. Nowhere, couldn't find it on the internet, didn't matter, you know, Yahoo, Google, you know, nothing, no specialized tools could sort of help you uncover that. Uh, and so the bottleneck in the investment business became largely about uh, finding great opportunities and putting yourself in the right place at the right time. 
to, to find those opportunities and to partner with those entrepreneurs. And then as capital poured into the private markets, that bottleneck only became more acute and, and, and more of a sharp mm-hmm. bottleneck for, for buyers of businesses. So um, for, you know, so I ended up uh, starting a company in 2009, Axial. Website is axial.net. And now, luckily, axial.com. <laughs> and dot com. <laughs> uh, you can go to either one. And Axial <laughs> is effectively an introduction platform on the internet um, that confidentially introduces buyers and sellers of small and mid-sized American businesses and does it in a way that respects the confidentiality and the privacy preferences um, and the agency of the seller. So the seller is driving the process uh, and deciding who they want to engage with and when they want to engage with them and on the terms that they're comfortable with. Um, and that platform uh, is 100% software-based and, and software-led and is focused on just generating literally hundreds of thousands of targeted, high-quality introductions between active pre-qualified buyers and active vetted uh, pre-qualified sellers. Um, and we do that um, as the, that's the core business is making those introductions, facilitating those introductions and using software and data to, to change the, the game of, of deal sourcing for both the buyer and for the seller's benefit. And I love it, man, because uh, when you and I talked uh, years ago, you know, I, I, I've learned a lot since. And, and one of your things that you even said on the website, but is also that you mentioned in our previous interview is the inefficiencies in the lower market. And, and, and I think a lot of the themes that we want to talk about today, like in you just to kind of rattle off a few and we can take these in different, different chunks, but like the amount of capital sloshing around the amount of people going down market, the different types of buyers that are coming around and all just, there's just such a, a hyper focus now on this even more. So I think because of COVID and the baby boomers and just a lot of macro trends kind of like pushing people this direction. But before we just kind of pick, you know, some of those topics to unpack, what, what, when you like your definition of inefficiencies, so like maybe give us some examples of like, what do you mean by inefficiencies? What were you trying to solve? What like different like parts of that bottleneck that you kept seeing? Like what, maybe kind of give us some examples. Yeah, sure. I mean, the most, you know, important thing to remember is that if you are an investor in public companies, you can deploy capital basically instantaneously, right? If you decide you want to buy a hundred million dollars worth of of, of, of equity in Apple or Google or Facebook or 3M or Exxon or Chevron or a whole host of other, you know, multi-hundred million, multi-billion dollar businesses, you can pull the trigger on that. It's not just, you know, buying 100,000 or 200,000. You can build huge positions quickly in those businesses because they're publicly traded. And you don't have to meet the CEO. You don't have to meet the owners. You don't have to go and fly to Texas and meet with the CEO of Exxon to talk about investing, you know, 10, 20, 100, 300 million dollars in, in, in the equity of their business. Right. There is a there is a really high performing marketplace where those shares are trading freely um, among and between, you know, uh, free and willing and able buyers and sellers. That's not the case when you're buying small businesses. You can never do a deal with a small business owner until you've met the owner. You have to meet them. There's really no other path. So so the question is, how are you going to meet many, many, many hundreds of small business owners in a way that uh, doesn't waste your time and in a way that doesn't waste their time? And that was really the primary bottleneck that we, you know, that I was experiencing when I was, you know, working for this private equity firm and looking at the deal sourcing top of funnel challenges that they were experiencing and that they were going to have intensify. 
There are other inefficiencies as well, but I mean, the number one goal for Axial is to create a set of introductions for buyer and seller uh, at the right points in time, on the right opportunities, with the right types of buyers, right types of sellers. Down the funnel from that introduction, there are other really significant you know, inefficiencies, and some of them sound trivial, but are still quite uh, substantive. Real. It can be, yeah, it can be a bad lawyer who recommends a completely crazy non-disclosure agreement <laughs> that no buyer is willing to, you know, to sign, and it, you know, he thinks that he's protecting the seller, but what he's really doing is just making it really hard for the business to to transact or. You know that same lawyer further down the funnel can you know can 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 create other problems. Um, so there's there's inefficiency in document preparation. There's inefficiency in what are fair and standard terms uh, to transact um, at different sort of key aspects of a transaction. There's also a lot of inefficiency just in terms of the the due diligence process, right? So mm-hmm. any any buyer who's going to buy a private company is going to need to spend a significant amount of time making sure that the financial condition, the legal condition of the company is as represented, right? It's that it's consistent with how it's being represented. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of inefficiency in that aspect of transaction execution because most small businesses do not necessarily keep really 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 pristine records on all of that information. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing just because at it's all, right like, at all. It's, it's yeah, at all, right? Yeah, at all. Yeah, it's not right? a priority it's, when it's you're running your center. business. You know, you're building products, you're hiring people, you're replacing people that may have left you. You're dealing with labor issues or labor shortages, mm-hmm. or you know, you're not like spending the time to say, "Well, I'm going to get my financials audited so that 10 years from now, when I want to sell my company, you know, it's going to happen lickety split." And so, you know, you, you make you def, you know, there's a whole bunch of like deferred maintenance essentially business maintenance you know that you've kind of deferred right and when it comes time to sell the business you have this huge pile up of maintenance and it's got to all pushed through this you know this this narrow you know this narrow hose because the buyer ultimately won't close without uh you know sort of marching through that that Mm -hmm. checklist of of usually pretty reasonable requests so yeah there's inefficiency from the discovery layer where you're you know who's going to buy my business why would they want my business why are they a great partner for my business? What are they going to do with it? There's all of the you know inefficiency around that, and then just getting to the finish line has you know there's, there's a lot of hard work there, and I think over the next ten years we can make a lot of that hard work uh, more effective and, and more productive. Yeah, amen, man. And I think um, you know just uh, it's it's almost like when you when you really start unpacking it, it's almost a freaking miracle that these deals get done. Almost <laughs> like it, it, because because yeah. of how like. I mean, we had a couple of clients that recently sold uh, and every deal dies a thousand deaths. I heard that once years ago and I was like, yeah, and I'm pretty sure my clients experienced every single one of those mini deaths along the way. Yeah. And it's, yeah. uh, you know, in a couple other parts too, like, and I'm curious on where the education stands. Cause like, I'm, I'm trying to tackle this problem and our company is from the education side. Cause like you even get to that point where willing buyer, willing seller, they go through this introduction. And now like, how is it like the uniform or standard of like, Hey, what does value mean? And how do you value these things? I mean, I don't know if you see like where that falls into, into the, you know, essentially the, the chain of events and okay, like how far off are we from just like expectations and like what we understand? Yeah. 
Um, well, I mean, I think the good news, uh, I mean, the education, I think we've made a lot of progress, I think, just as an industry and as a group mm-hmm. of, of entrepreneurs and, and operators that care about the effectiveness of capital markets for private companies. I feel like we've made a lot of progress over the last 10 years, you know, whether it's I think we've all made contributions, you know, whether it's the Intentional Growth podcast or whether it's some of the work that guys like Brent Bishore have done. Obviously, Axial's tried to sort of, you know, pull, you know, pull our fair mm-hmm. share. Um, but I think that, you know, if you look back 10, 15 years on the amount of relatively high quality educational content and courses and information that is available, I think we've made a huge, huge leap forward in terms mm-hmm. of people that are putting out content in the form of podcasts, books, you know, maybe now the question is is really sort of filtering through all of that and figuring out sort of what's most germane for me, you know, mm-hmm. business owner A versus business owner B, or what's more germane for a startup entrepreneur versus a more mature, small, uh, you know, smaller, medium-sized business. But I think education has come a huge way uh, with the benefit of time and the incredible mm-hmm. powers of the internet, right? I mean, um, it's just, we've all been able to produce really great educational content or at least some really good educational content. And I do think there are a lot of entrepreneurs and small business owners that really listen to it. You know, they mm-hmm. they listen to some podcasts or they read some books or, you know, they, you know, they thumb through some articles. And I think that that's, uh, I think that that's really helped. I think valuation is probably a more tricky subject um, you know, yeah. and sort of like agreeing to value. And I think getting good information on value and valuation and true comparable data sets for a given business, those are harder things, I think, to get the buyers and the sellers to align on. But I think the fundamental layer of education for, for business owners, I think, has made a really nice step forward over the last five to 10 years. And, you know, that's been a good thing. For, for both sides, I think there's more room, more room for sure. There's plenty of, you know, sort of folks that are just not aware of what it takes to successfully sell a business and that enter into it too lightly. Still, there's mm-hmm. plenty of that. But I think that we really have made a nice dent in some of those education and readiness challenges over the last 10 years. That's, that's, that's encouraging. Good to hear. And, and I'm curious, like, in your in your introductions and in the the market making that you're trying to do, like when valuation and in terms come into play, like how fast like in the process do you introduce that? Because like I think about like you know like the the clients that we work with, whether through the education or CFO service or whatever it might be, or the people I talk to, it's like. I mean, like we got to start somewhere. It's like, you're not going to apply for a job. If you're normally like looking for a hundred thousand dollar job, you're not going to apply for one that's 30 grand. Like, and so you kind of got to go, I like the job description is fantastic, but like, what's the pay when that's like the valuation. And then there's like the, Oh, by the way, when and how am I going to get that money? Like how, where does that get integrated into your process? And are you seeing it or like the most effective process? How do you, how do you introduce that? Yeah. So, you know, our, I mean, we do not prescribe a point in time uh, that buyers and sellers and the advisors who are being entrusted by the seller to run the the sale process, we don't prescribe a point in time um, where that sort of alignment needs to take place. What we usually see on our platform, because our platform is arranging the introductions, uh, you know, digitally and, you know, what we usually see is 
uh, a relatively standard process. Uh, if a seller of a business is executing a relatively standard process of engaging with a variety of buyers at a relatively concurrent set of points in time, um, the way in which sort of price and terms are put on the table is after uh, NDA has been signed, there is usually a couple of weeks to review the more in-depth materials uh, that summarize the business. And then the seller's advisor is typically laying out a process, sort of like, here's how we're going to go from where we are today to a closing of this transaction. And one of those stages is just providing indi you know, initial indications of interest in the business. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's not a binding offer by any of the buyers, but nonetheless, you have to take out the pen and you have to write, you know, you, you know, and, and there's a purification process of the buyers, but because some just aren't going to put together a professionally written initial indication of interest. And so the indication of interest is sort of where the buyer sort of says, based upon what we know and based upon the representations from the seller, you know, based upon our understanding of this business and businesses like it and our work in this industry, here's the range, you know, here's the pricing range or here's the rough range that we could imagine. And sellers are, are, are reviewing a variety of indications of interest, typically from a variety of buyers and trying to get a sense for who do they want to really begin to spend time with, right? Because you can't necessarily spend time, a huge amount of time with a huge number of buyers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that process very often can happen within the first month of a formal, mm -hmm. you know, a formal engagement with buyer, you know, with a set of buyers. Um, I think if it, if it's not happening by the end of the second month, you know, there might be good reasons for it. But I think that to your point, Ryan, if you're not getting a little bit aligned on pricing in terms relatively early on in the process, you know, it's kind of like when you were saying, what's like, you know, you, you yeah. go, you, what's the point, right? It's kind of like going through an interview process. You want to get paid $100,000. Their plan is to pay maximum $40,000, ideally $30,000. You're going to end up loving one another and then, you know, leaving one another at the <laughs> altar, at the, you know, yep. in the bottom of the yep. ninth inning. So there's good alignment up front. It usually happens in the first month. Now, if it's not a formal process, right, and, you know, a buyer has approached a seller on an unsolicited basis, it's just emailed the CEO and says, you know, I'd like to buy your business. I mean, then I, I would think that. Almost right off the bat, you're like, hey, what do you I would what, think? Like, yeah, I, I, yeah, I would yeah. think it's unusual for that not to be even, you know, even more immediate. So like in, in the typical like marketplace right now, as you know, just to kind of put some parameters and different concepts here, like, you know, the intermediaries have been driving a lot of the, the marketplace here. So on the lower end, you got the brokers who people, you know, give them an analogy of like real estate brokers because it's more like website listing. They blast the website. It's going to be mainly an asset sale and just, you know, you're going to get less of the deal structure. There's just a whole different kind of set of characteristics on the bottom part of the market get to the larger part of the market, call it, you know, a few million and EBITDA more, you get a whole different set of investment banking and stock sales, all this stuff. And then there's the, I call it the no man's land, which is like, unfortunately, the heart of American business, which is, you know, half a million in EBITDA to 2 million, where you kind of yeah. go, okay, like, where do I get my help? So like, I, that's one of the biggest, huge inefficiencies I've seen in the marketplace. How, how, you know, have you seen the same thing? Do you, are you seeing trends going a different direction? How does accident in your marketplace fit into that that situation? 
Well, that's a really interesting issue. I think you're right. And I think, I mean, I'm not sure it's, yeah, I don't know if it's an inefficiency or if it's just something, there's a structural, there's a, I think there's a, I think it's important for business owners to sort of understand maybe where some of this challenge comes from, right? So uh, the way to think about it, maybe if you're working backwards from a business owner, you have to understand that if you're a financial intermediary, and your responsibility, your stock and trade, your profession is to sell businesses, right? If you're extremely good at that and you're extremely well-trained and you've been blessed or you've worked you know, hard to put yourself in a position to go and advise you know, bigger companies, you're going to make a lot more money as an advisor advising bigger companies. And the, the, the primary reason for that is that the size of the dollars is rising faster than the percentage success fee is falling for a given M&A transaction. So, you know, selling a $100 million business and taking a 2% fee is going to generate a much, much bigger fee outcome than selling a business for a million dollars and charging 10%, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's one reason why there is a lot of high quality M&A advice that tends to move Rise its way to the, to, the larger, the market, to, yeah. the, to the larger businesses. The other reason, which I think is less talked about and is maybe less obvious, but is actually probably just as important, is that in some ways, it's a lot easier to sell bigger businesses than it is to sell smaller businesses. And the reason for that is maybe obvious, but in case it's not, small businesses have far less of a finance function so they're typically far less equipped and prepared to handle the requirements and the due diligence requests of a professional buyer. In many cases, they don't have annualized audits and, and other highly verifiable financial statements and other indications of information on the business that can be relied upon. And so when a business is bigger, it can afford those audits, it's typically getting those, it's pursuing those best practices already, and so you can snap your way through those M&A sales. I mean, look, doing M&A is never easy. It's you know, these are huge handmade transactions, but it's just easier. In addition to getting more dollars for it, it's also easier. It's it's not as complicated. There aren't as many loose ends. And so what that does is create a real scarcity of great advisory talent selling small businesses. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm not trying to speak negatively on it uh, about who who's selling small businesses. It's just the better you get at it, the more you want to move up market. Uh, and, dude, so, uh, and so there's this I, constant, you know, there's just this constant flow mm-hmm. of talent moving up market and, you know, saying, well, we only want to sell $25 million businesses now, or I only want to sell $50 million businesses now. And then the lower middle market kind of has to replenish its, you know, set of intermediaries. That- and it just creates this structural challenge for small and mid-sized businesses that, you know, is is really problematic for the sellers, and it's it's really problematic for the buyers, um, because you know. Well, and and Peter, I like how you how you articulated that is is awesome, and like, and I'll I'll add to a couple parts too. Is that the deferred maintenance is not an issue as you get bigger too? Like, so that goes back to the ease of the deal, um, because they're actually like doing all those things that you're talking about, and honestly, like the quality of advisors, like I and honestly, this was a this was a concept that I I had actually flipped my my th- thinking on years ago where like you know the cheap advisors 
make things harder if they actually don't know what they're doing. Like, so like if you're a buyer, you're excited to work with someone that gets it quote unquote, because there's nothing worse with a CPA or an MA or an attorney or someone that pretends to know what they're doing and has no yeah. clue. And they, they actually are probably doing more detrimental work on the seller's behalf than the seller even knows because of how ridiculous of the requests are or the structure. They, they don't know that they're playing chess. They're still trying to play some kind of version of checkers or something. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's right. And so, you know, I think what ends up happening is it just gets into this sort of negative cycle where the intermediaries say, I can't spend the time necessary to get this business fully prepared. So I'm just going to like spray and pray and hopefully there's a buyer out there who's willing to sort of like do the work and 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 and, and slog it out to really figure out mm-hmm. um what is the true condition of this business's, you know, financial earnings, et cetera. But I'm not as an advisor, I'm not going to like get all of that deferred maintenance taken care of before I take the business to market. So they as a result, it's just sort of like they take on a lot of assignments, right? And they just sort of like push the, done. <laughs> yeah, just push them out the door and sort of, you know, hope that, you know, well, the market that, that, ends up telling them too, which is just like, I, I mean, I have, I've had people go through our training, Peter, like two years, half a million dollars with advisors failed private equity sale. And it's just like, yeah. we'll talk about inefficiencies. Like they could have spent that money growing their business. They took the eye off the ball. I mean, like, it's just such unfortunate, but like to your, to your point, like I never had as much empathy for the advisors when I started this gig as I do now, we're like, yeah, like these brokers, you're going, okay, well, if you want to make the money that you're supposed to make, that's kind of your only option because people are coming there, coming to you saying, Hey, I want to sell my company. And they've got paper or like, send me your, send me your company financials. And it's literally their tax returns. Like that's different. (laughs) It's like, how would you even represent that company? (laughs) That's exactly right. And, and, And the case is totally different. If that same company says, Hey, I want to sell my company, but I want to do it three years from now and I'll pay you X thousand dollars every month to sort of help me get ready between now and three years. But when the business owner says, Hey, I'm done, sell it. And I, you know, (laughs) you know, it's a tough position, you know, it's a tough position for them to be in. So, so how does, how does your marketplace handle the intermediary situation? So you, cause like, I, I, like one of the things that I'm super impressed with it. I mean, you, you mentioned right from the beginning is sellers are driving the, the, the process and it's like, there's, it's business owner focus. So like with, with the fact that a lot of owners do it once, maybe they don't have this expertise, like how are you getting the expertise and intermediaries and how do they fit into that process? So the intermediaries, so our, our software and the introduction platform that we've built, which is all, it's all software based. It's all available to the intermediary community as much as it is available to owners of businesses directly. And that's been our choice and the design of the business actually since day one. There are so many intermediaries uh, in the lower middle market and in the SMB market that if you are a professional buyer of businesses and your goal and your why you got into the business of buying businesses, it's not so that you could go and like chase down thousands of different intermediaries over the course of your career. You're, the reason you became a buyer of businesses is because you wanted to buy businesses, you know, either buy and operate them or buy them and then sit on the board and try and, you know, help them. I mean, that's the profession of private equity or, 
you know, buying and owning and operating. And so most people on the buy side do not really want to try and build a CRM with thousands and thousands of brokers who they're going to just occasionally interact with. And so as a result, Axial's platform makes it really easy for buyers to find deals from lots of different business owners, but also from a huge, huge long tail of of financial intermediaries who use the exact same software. We don't charge the intermediaries for the core software tools that we that we offer. So there's no disincentive for them to use it on behalf of their clients. When I mean that you know the platform is really driven by the sellers, what I mean is the seller either operating directly on his or her own behalf or you know through the agency of an intermediary they're deciding who to share the deal with. So on a real estate Got listing it. site, you put up the pictures of your kitchen and your front yard and all this stuff, and you say your house is for sale, and anybody with an internet connection can go and see you know, your kitchen and your closet or whatever else you uploaded to, to the <laughs> list, right? On Axial, we don't treat the sale of businesses the way that uh, real estate platforms treat the sale of of property. We we think businesses are fundamentally different because there are employees there. There are lots of sensitivities. People want to sell businesses very often confidentially or very quietly. And so as a result, the way Axial is built is the sellers decide who do they want to share the opportunity with. Got it. We give them the data on the buyers. We give them the tools to engage those buyers. We say, hey, here are the buyers we recommend, and here's what the data is suggesting about their likelihood of being interested uh, in your business. But ultimately, you can decide, do you want to reach out to 10, 20, 100, just one, two? You want to do it all at the same time, or you want to stage it? Um, we want to keep that control with the seller or with the seller's intermediary because uh, what we found happens is once you want to be a platform for businesses that are worth more than five to ten million dollars, that's what the business owners want. They don't want their business for sale on the internet for, so that anybody can can go and look at it. They want to have a lot of control over who are the buyers that they're talking to, what's the information that's being released to them. At what point in the you know in the conversation mm-hmm. is that information being released? So you can't just sort of create a listing and, and put it out there. That that works mm-hmm. great in real estate. It doesn't really work very well in the purchase and sale of small business. Yeah, I, 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 well said. And um, you know, I think in the online space, I've I've been uh, in the fray of just a lot of the online e-commerce. I've become friends with the Quiet Light Brokerage or the FE International. These, I mean, like. A lot of those e-commerce, FBA or whatever, they're, they're built to sell and they're selling them and they don't and they're listing them and they're blasting them out. And that might be a, a different thing, like you said, than like, hey, there's only four of these type of companies in this state. Like if I put it up there, people are gonna know it's probably me. <laughs> yeah. No, that's right. I think there are certain kinds of businesses where you can triangulate on the identity of the business um, if you have a few data points. And that tends to make business owners even more even more sensitive. That makes them very sensitive to disclosing location of the business because usually that's one of the most powerful data points for triangulation purposes. Yep. So you know, I was going to you know okay. in the FBA space, I mean, I think one of the interesting things is that there are certain pieces of there are certain pockets of small business M&A that can actually benefit from some standardization and actually FBA businesses and 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 businesses that are sort of in that e-commerce category that are, you know, uh, either FBA or Shopify businesses. I mean, I wouldn't say that those businesses can be bought and sold, you know, like publicly traded stock, mm-hmm. but those businesses are more t- 
tem- template, more templatic yeah. in certain yeah. ways, right? I mean, that's a good word. I wouldn't have picked that um, one. <laughs> you know, or templatized. I don't know if templatized. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm fine. You know, templatized, <laughs> right? You know, there's a certain set of SKUs that they offer. There's a certain amount of inventory that they carry. There's a certain, you know, setup of your Amazon yeah. account of Shopify yeah. And, and yeah, yeah, 100%. And, you know, we, we were talking about this before you pushed record. You know, there there is growing specialization of buyers as well as growing diversity of buyers and buyer types of small businesses. And there are definitely, as you probably know, there are some high volume at scale buyers of FBA businesses. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there are companies that are exclusively set up to raise capital to go out and find and buy FBA businesses. And so because FBA businesses are so small, they have to get really, really good at doing the transactions very, mm-hmm. very quickly um, and with a lot of standardization because the, the transactions are so small that the only way for them to put a lot of money to work is to, you know, just ram it through. Rinse and, and repeat. Rinse and yeah. repeat. Yeah. Well, and, and, you, and you, you you bridged to the next topic that I wanted to talk about is the diversification and specialization of the buyers. And then, then we can kind of get into the capital that's sloshing around and how that's impacting multiples and, and different types of buyers. But on the types of buyers right now, I mean, I, I recall when you and I had talked, um, one of the constraints that I had saw in the mid to lower market was you know, just the, the, the one of the primary mechanisms of the SBA loan that's going in there, the $5 million cap, and then the fact that you can't get you know creative on the deal structure, have the owner stay on for a while, maybe make some income and help. Yet there's this now proliferation of acquisition entrepreneurs, search funds, you know, ETA acquisition through entrepreneurship that are like now kind of, or acquisition, you know, that are now jumping in. Like, what are you seeing as it relates to that market or just the diversification of buyers in general? Well, I'd say that there's definitely growth in the ETA category for sure. Um, ETA being entrepreneurship through acquisition, where you know some young gun uh, wants to uh, you know buy a business um, a, as a means by which to become you know CEO as opposed to founding a business de novo. And the ETA the ETA category has grown in number. There are more schools and business schools that are supporting it. There are funds being raised to go and back the uh mm-hmm. you know the ultra you know the ETA searcher so there's definitely been just volume growth uh for sure in in the sort of funded search fund uh and ETA backer category i think there's also there's definitely just growth in the number of kind of people that have just walked away from the more like white collar you know, life of investment banking or higher end sort of white shoe private equity. And I've just said, I want to go and buy and operate small businesses for my own account. And I want to buy them mostly with my own capital and hopefully with the partnership of the seller through seller financing and seller note. And maybe a little bit of SBA debt or, you know, maybe a couple of friends and family money, but no fund is being raised. I'm really doing this because I just don't want to do do it for someone else. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I don't want to do it for someone else. I don't want to be at some huge fund and chasing the next huge deal. I really want to, I really want to do this. And we're seeing, I mean, I'll give you a really cool example of this. Um, There is a, a investment firm, um, that was started. Uh, it's they're in Boston, um, and the name of the firm is Shaker Hill. And 
not necessarily that significant, but I just want to put the name out there. Mm-hmm. They're they're clients of Axial. They use Axial to find businesses to buy. The, the the two founding principals were professional money managers at Fidelity. They were managing huge, huge pools of capital in mutual funds and other actively managed accounts. And they moved on and they said, you know, this is not the life we want to live. This is not the kind of work that we want to do. We don't want to just be sitting here picking stocks that we have nothing to do with. We have no connection to the management team. And they bought a chocolate business last year through Axial or earlier this Why year. Why not? They, <laughs> I uh, love it. <laughs> and it's called, you know, they bought a chocolate business and um, they reached out to me and just sort of said, thank you so much for helping to create Axial and, and, and creating this platform that's, you know, allowed us to pursue a new chapter in our careers. And there's a lot of that. Like there really is a lot of that. And it's not just happening from folks that are graduating from business schools. It's happening from people who are gainfully employed, working in finance, working in corporate law, uh, maybe working for a big industrial conglomerate like a Danaher or a 3M or something like that. I mean, we're we're sort of seeing it happening from anywhere. And that is really, really exciting uh, because as a business owner, that you know, I think it used to be a little bit more true that, you know, if you were selling your lower middle market business, you were selling it to a kind of professional down the middle private equity firm or a corporate strategic buyer, like a competitor or a strategic buyer, you know, mm-hmm. that was sort of in your trade and and in your category or in an adjacent category. And those options still exist most of the time. But you you have these other options now that you can begin to contemplate. And they're not random sort of high in the sky potential alternatives. There really is you know, real, real volume of buyers in the market that have that more, more modified sort of demographic uh, mm-hmm. profile. That, that's pretty interesting for, for business owners. To- totally agree, man. And like the ability for these buyers who might have an operational expertise or like looking from going from fidelity to chocolate. But like, I, I think what's interesting about it is, and, and I don't know if you're, if, I'm curious of your thoughts of kind of some of my uh, observations in the last handful of years is that you have more of those people that are going, okay, this is an opportunity. And like, Hey, I don't, there's less uh, like I'm okay. in maybe a dirty industry or something like that. Cause it makes a bunch of money and like, Hey, like yeah. the ego tied to like the skyscraper and the white, <laughs> white collar stuff like you're talking about. It's like, what's more the 90 hour grind or working a little bit less managing, you know, in the, you know, a lawn business or, you know, HVAC, but so I think there's some of the operating operating pressures or, or trends happening, but the the capital and now the proliferation of capital that has been injected in the marketplace that's looking for a home to get yield is just insane. Like, I mean, I've watched traditional private equity firms that wouldn't touch anything over two million bucks in EBITDA because you know I saw that kind of as this arbitrary threshold because you know anything above below that you're all of a sudden getting more into the operational weeds where like you can't just hire EY at a half a million bucks a year to go fix your shit. You have to like go in, roll up your sleeves and do it yourself because the cash flow can't support the consultants. So the the money's pushing these people down and that ETA um buyer or the surge funds are kind of filling a goofy need between the the debt equity and the operating experience. I mean I don't know if you're, you th- what do you think? I mean, I don't know if I'm off track on that or if it's kind of the, no, if it's I, kind of the. I, I, I think that there's all, there's all, there's, there's a couple big, big trends on the buy side, right? Um, that I think are, are driving this. One of the trends is you have 
you have a class of kind of highly, highly educated, very capable and upwardly mobile, but somewhat disenfranchised young talent that's saying, I don't want to go work for KKR for the next 30 years or, you know, Fidelity or whatever like it is. Raise funds for Blackstone. Yeah, 100%. Exactly. And, you know, work like 70 to 100 hours a week for the next 15 years. Like, I just don't want to do it. I'm, I'm super, I loved my time here. I want to move back home. I want to move down to the South or wherever. And I want to go and, you know, be involved in the development and the running of businesses. And so there's, there's that, there's that whole kind of wave. And, mm-hmm. and, that wave of talent is going to buy small businesses because they don't have the balance sheets to buy big businesses. So it's all basically concentrating that that wave all concentrates in small and lower middle market uh, transactions, which is great for small business owners. The second big, you know, sort of, you know, item I think that we're talking about on the buy side is there's no place to earn yield on your money right now. And there hasn't been for a while now. And you know, who knows, maybe that might change. And, you know, the the Federal Reserve might have their hand forced with 5% inflation, which, you know, is now a reality. But for the last 10 years, and we'll see, you know, what goes from here, there's no place to earn a return on your cash. And so as a result, a huge amount of capital has been looking to find a home in, mm-hmm. in, in assets that can yield something uh, attractive. And, if your best alternative is basically 25 basis points in risk-free treasuries, then earning like a 12% return or a 15% return in a private company, you know, it used to be like, you know, that capital used to insist on a 25% return, right? Mm -hmm. Or a 30% return. A lot of that capital doesn't insist on a 25, 30% IRR anymore. It's like, 15%, 15%, like, let's do it. We have no other, you know, like, let's do it. (laughs) Where else, man? Yeah, exactly. Right. Isn't what else crazy? And so there's, you know, so that's created larger funds, larger fund sizes, more funds, and just an expansion of, you know, of the alternative investment, you know, uh, uh, industry. It's I it, which is just, I mean, so the infl- the, the five five point one inflation for the CPI, the, the consumer price index that you mentioned, is one thing, but like Peter, I'm watching that, like, so the throttle that it got pushed down, the injection of this capital, like. I mean, it, it allows the credit creation too. So like the multiples and the inflation of the privately held companies, I'm seeing valuations that I'm like, oh my God, I couldn't imagine being that fund buyer and like trying to deliver whatever IRR you promised to other people. Yeah. And they're, and again, so they're, they're, and I see like two things at play where like, they're going, okay, well, if I'm a, if I'm a general partner at a private equity firm and I have to buy companies to get the rate of return for the investors and I lose deal after deal after deal, cause I'm underbidding, you're either going to overpay or you're going to go down market, which it, yeah. it seems like, a, like I, I'm really happy. I'm not in that position as an individual, because it seems like a very small corner <laughs> to, to get backed into. No, I think that's exactly right. I think that you know, they they know that they have to pay more in order to be competitive because there is so much capital available and it's, you know, and the availability of the capital is pushing down the return requirements uh, on that capital, right? And so if you're going to pay more for the same business, you either need to accept a lower return on your, you know, your invested capital or you need to find a way once you own that business 
to really accelerate the the value of that business, right? You really have to do something different with that business once you own it in order to get the return. <laughs> exactly. In order to get the return. And so, I, and, and so that has led to a lot of different methods and techniques that used to be more like optional upside now being very, very fundamentally required in order to sort of make the math work or mm-hmm. to make the math exciting. And mm-hmm. so private equity firms that used to be generalists and would look at businesses across any industry category have said, let's pick two or three sectors and let's just be animals in those sectors. Let's know everything about them. Let's play to our strengths. Let's get really specific. Let's get really focused. Let's build long, you know, deep relationships and pipelines into those markets and industries. Let's try and get to know the top 100 CEOs in that category. They're doing things like that in order to try and sort of really focus themselves and 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 so that when they own the business they really actually do have uh, a more credible plan for sort of how to more you know to to, to accelerate the value of the business mm-hmm. and, and not just to sort of ride whatever the existing sort of tailwind of growth is that the business was already experiencing so that that's happened a lot in private equity you have industry specialized private equity you have you know private equity that's focused on growth through M&A. So they're not buying businesses unless there's like a consolidation play. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their their plan before they even buy the initial business is let's go have like 25 other targets that we're already in conversations with. And the moment we close the initial business, we're already, you know, getting ready to sort of sign up the next one, oh, two, it, three, four, five businesses. So all these plays are emerging because the, the, the availability of capital is putting so much pressure on the private equity operators to to really find ways to make money in spite of having to pay much higher prices. And again, it's all kind of good from a business owner's perspective. I mean, you have to ultimately navigate these things and make heads or tails of it. And there's way more buyers that you have to sort through. But if you have a good intermediary or you have somebody who's you know good who's helping you um, and you take your time and you don't want to just sell your business in two months, you know, and, uh, you know, because you all of a sudden are fed up with it. That, that's the problem. You know, if, if you can take the time as a business owner to sort of take advantage of these market dynamics, there's a lot to like of about being yeah. an entrepreneur yeah. today. But yeah. if you approach yeah, yeah. the market and you're just like, I'm fed up and I'm tired and COVID really kicked, you know, you know, kicked me while I was down and I just want to sell this thing in two or three months, it still Good doesn't luck. really work. Yeah. It still doesn't work very well. well it, it, yeah. And you, you brought up a great point and I know we're getting short on time here is that I like, it's it's good if you understand how to tell the differences of all that, which is the whole point of this. Even this this specific hour is like the more you know of what questions to ask, the better you can find your ideal match, which is just the point. And then you can use it to your advantage. But if you don't know all of these dynamics that are at play behind the scenes, behind the purchase, the, the purchase price offer, I mean, it, it, you're just you're set up for potentially misaligned expectations, which is a bummer. But um. I know that we're getting, because we're short on time. Like, I'm curious, like, what, what is your hopes? You know, I, with COVID and like all, like whatever the Fed does with the interest rates and the liquidity and all this stuff, there it's going to work its way over the years through the system. What do you hope for actually? And like, what dent do you want to make in this space? Well, I I mean, we, we codified the mission of the company as uh, focusing on unleashing the potential of private capital markets. I mean, that's, and that we, we some people might, feel like that's a highfalutin, you know, thing, or it doesn't even mean anything. But for us, what that means is, and we, you know, we review 
the performance of the business every Friday, the whole company comes together and, you know, we, we typically review the mission and the values of the business. So it's very alive in our business. What, you know, what is it that we're doing? And I guess when I think about what does it mean to unleash the potential of private capital markets, you know, for the benefit of, of the market's participants, it's really about creating a far more accessible, far more transparent and, and far more merit-based capital market for small businesses. And when I say merit-based, what I, what I really mean is that high-quality businesses that have worked very hard to build themselves into high-quality businesses are in a position to see all of the options that are available to them and, and to be able to operate with a lot of confidence and a lot of trust and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of safety and, and, and hopefully to transact with really high rates of, of success. And for businesses that have not been developed into really, really high quality businesses, it shouldn't mean that they can't be sold. It should mm -hmm. mean that there is an orderly market where those businesses can be financed or can be sold as well. So I think, you know, our goal, what we hope to do through through Axial and frankly, what we hope to do with partners and customers and everybody who sort of works in this market is, is get the market to a place where business owners are being rewarded for the businesses that they have uh, collectively built with their teams. Investors are being rewarded for the reputations that they've achieved over the course of time. So great investors or specialized investors or you know, investors that have done really well by the businesses that they've bought have an advantage over investors who have cut corners, or you know, mm -hmm. over uh, um, you know, investors who, you know, who have not lived up to you know what they you know what they what they promised. Right. Um, we also hope the same for intermediaries. You know, we mm -hmm. we want to see a world in which high quality advice is rewarded, and where low quality advice is exposed because it's destructive to to, to the market, it's destructive to businesses for, for low quality advice to be at the table. So I think what we're really hoping for is, is a world where everybody can access the capital markets that deserves to. Business owners have good line of sight into what it's going to take to successfully uh, transact uh, in a way that they can feel good about. And people can get rewarded for you know what they've achieved. And it's conceptually, I think, a fairly straightforward thing to articulate to, 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 to accomplish it takes, you know, it takes time. We need to build up a lot of data on a lot of buyers. We need to build up a lot of data on a lot of sellers. We need to build up a lot of data on the intermediaries. And, um, you know, we're 10 years in and I feel like we're just getting started. So it's going to take a while. <laughs> Peter, I'll tell you what, man, like it's such a noble cause and what, what you just described is a world and a marketplace that I want to live in. So I, like, I, I look, like I said, I've been following you for years and it's a world that I want to live in and root for you and cheer you on as you guys are growing. Thank you. Um, Two, two final questions. Um, and I honestly, that like last little snippet was amazing. <laughs> so like, I, I don't want to, I want to overemphasize it. It's amazing. So the, the last two questions, the word intentional name of the show, I'd love to know your definition of the word intentional and then where people can find you. So I actually, uh, have a very, um, I have a prepared answer for this cause I did some homework for me. Intentional <laughs> is really about just, it's about the deliberateness uh, with which the growth occurs. So intentional growth. I think I've always thought it was a great choice when you rename the podcast. This, you know, the development of a business should be intentional. Intentional should mean it's deliberate, it's measured, it's carefully considered. Uh, you're thinking through the lens of employees, through customers, through shareholders. Uh, for me, intentional just means there's a real mindfulness that's coming from the C-suite 
uh, around how they're, you know, the, the, the craftsmanship associated with business building. Um, and that's why I always loved it. Uh, and, uh, wish I could, wish I could steal it from you, but, um, no, I think, <laughs> I think it's a great word and I think you've used it very well. <clears throat> much, much appreciated, man. I really, it means a lot. <clears throat> and we know, I was going to say, we know a couple domains, but why don't you give them the, the, the good place to, <laughs> to reach out? <laughs> you can find, uh, you can find me, uh, through, I'm, I'm available on LinkedIn, very responsive there. Um, and, and Axial, you can find at axial.com. Uh, there's lots of free tools on the site, uh, lots of free information. We also have a publication called the Middle Market Review, um, which you can find at Axial or at middlemarketreview.com. That's a free newsletter that publishes uh, lots of content and information on all kinds of issues related to the purchase and sale of small businesses. So thanks, Ryan, for giving me the opportunity to plug that. Oh yeah, you bet. And honestly, the the middle the the newsletter is amazing. I get it every day. That's how I, I mean. I spark a lot of. I've actually interviewed quite a, a couple of different people from the from the newsletter. I was like, oh, that's a great topic. So thanks for everything you're doing, Peter. Yeah, same here, Ryan. Thanks for having me back, and uh, it was great to be with you. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Peter. I I love talking about the big picture of the inefficiencies, especially with the fact that like, I mean, most companies, over 50% of companies are privately held businesses in America and accessing capital, you know, getting to the point where we all understand the value of certain companies and the risks associated with certain companies and who are good advisors, not good advisors. I mean, it is literally the mission behind Arcona and the Intentional Growth Framework to help educate the marketplace. So Peter's got the platform and Axial's doing, uh, making sure to facilitate deals. And, you know, with our with the Intentional Growth Training, we're helping level the playing field for everybody because as you heard in the episode it's easier if everybody understands what's going on we can do deals faster people can get what they want faster and people can move on and just really enjoy the better parts of business and the impact and the wealth that they want to create so if you want to know more about the educational program go check out arcona.io check out the curriculum of the intentional growth podcast or the intentional growth uh, uh online training because we cover about valuations, deal structures, exits, value growth, all the team of advisors that you're going to need and the the expertise that are going to have to be around you. So that way you can do deals, whether it's growing value and exiting yourself or buying companies on the way to your eventual exit. Go check it out at arcona.io. Otherwise, I will see you next week.